Hello out there in podcast land. This week's episode number 23 of the Artist of Motion podcast features a gentleman who spent his life on the west coast of the United States of America and most of it in various lineages of Kempo study. Mr. Milt Gannett comes to us from Hillsboro, Oregon, and we have a great chat talking about his history and what he's learned during his martial career. Milt has been blessed to study with some great people from some strong lineages, and it's our pleasure to have him join us for this episode. We've had a great time bringing these episodes to everyone. By far, our biggest assistance our listeners can provide is to subscribe to our podcast via one of our links. Facebook is pretty convenient, but it really doesn't do much for us in the way of visibility. We've had thousands of listens across all of our platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and there are several others that interface with those platforms. What really counts, though, is when we can get subscribers to subscribe and rate our show. That helps us greatly in the ratings that help us with advertising costs to cover our production costs. Whatever platform you choose is great. Share the links, subscribe if you can, to get our new episodes automatically downloaded free of charge to your choice of platform. If you're an Apple user, hit www.artistsofmotion.com slash iTunes. If you're an Android user, www.artistsofmotion.com slash Google Play for easy subscriber links. We're still going to be accessible through all of Season 1 on Facebook. Season 2, we'll see what happens. That reminds me, we had a production meeting and decided we're going to run this show with seasons of 26 episodes going forward. This one is episode 23, so we've got four episodes left in season one, including this one. Then we'll get to scheduling our guests for season two and do our best to bring you more great interviews. All right, enough from me. Let's get to our interview with Mr. Milton Gannett. All right, welcome to the Artist in Motion podcast. My guest today is Mr. Milton Gannett out of Hillsborough, Oregon. He's been a Kempo practitioner for most of his life, beginning in the late 1960s in San Rafael, California. He's trained in multiple lineages of the Kempo styles, specializing primarily in the Tracy's Karate lineage. He's also trained in American Kempo and Koshoru Kempo. He's lived all over the West Coast and, as of several years ago, settled in the Hillsboro area, which is outside of Portland, Oregon. He's on the other end of the line, and welcome to the show, Mr. Gannett. How are you today? I'm actually doing well. The weather is fine out here. It's not running for a change. It's a good day. Excellent. So I gave everybody kind of the short, short version of your, your bio there. What would you like to expand on for us? Now, tell us who you are and where you're from and all that good stuff. Perfect. Uh, you might as well start at the beginning. And uh, this will be after the dinosaurs for anyone who's thinking that I'm going to go back that far. No. Anyway, uh, I started my martial arts journey in 1969 in Santa Fe, California, at uh, closest Kempo Karate School. Um, I was uh, eight years old at the time. It was not my idea to do. It was my father's idea to get me into it because he had been studying for a year or so before me. And uh, his rationale, which ended up working out to be wonderful rationale, is the fact that when I was young, I was bullied because I was small in stature, and my name was Milton, and I had buck teeth, and kids are always cruel, but I think they were particularly more cruel in the old days. Of course, I haven't dealt with many kids in that way this time, but yes, it was very difficult, and I used to get um, accosted fairly regularly. Um, it got to the point where the bullies got to know me so well that they would usually only pick on me every other day or so, so I had time to like uh, get back up so they weren't uh, dealing with a wet washcloth, so to speak. And uh, so this was my dad's way of making it so I could maybe protect myself. Um, I didn't like it at first, but after a while it kind of came to grow on me. And uh, over a period of some years, I, I got to the point where it actually was very beneficial and uh, it's a very large part of my life, and I'm really, really glad that I stuck it out and went through it and uh, and went the course and did everything because it's, it's enhanced my life greatly. 
I can't, you know, really recommend it enough to people, but, you know, everyone's wired differently. But everyone, I think, should have some interest other than their job to kind of keep them busy. Um, I actually um, received my black belt in 1979, also in um, San Rafael. It wasn't from the same um, teacher, though. Cliff Close was around, as I as I recall, for about a year after I was there. And then after that, he left um, to points unknown. And I haven't heard or seen from him since then. And then uh, one of the senior students, Rich Brown, took over. And uh, I stayed with him for a while. And then because my parents um, divorced at a young age, I was kind of bounced between Vancouver, Washington, and California. So it was kind of difficult to stay too specific in any one place. I ended up getting my black belt from a Kempo practitioner. Um, the sad thing about it is after I got it, I found that uh, the uh, curriculum was a little um, shorter than, you know, a lot of the recognized curriculums. And so I felt a little bad about that. But it was still wonderful, you know, to be able to make that accomplishment. And, and basically that gave me the impetus to want to learn more. Um, so uh, at that point, um, later in 79, I moved up to Vancouver because uh, after college, I came up here to uh, sit, hang around with my father. He lived up in this area. And uh, everything was cheaper up here. You know, the rents were cheaper and everything from where I grew up in the Bay Area of California. So it was kind of nice to start my life out here where I wasn't so far in the hole. So I came up here, and uh, I actually did a small stint in uh, with my father in Chungukdo Karate in the 70s. It was a Korean um, lineage um, under George Beckelheimer. It was... Uh, Kind of related to Taekwondo, but a little more like um, Hapkido-ish. But other than that, I, I don't know. I have I suspect that it might have been a hybrid art of other things. But it was a lot of fun and kind of kept me uh, in the game, you know, at that point. My father pretty much stopped doing it, um, probably in the mid-70s. And I kept up with it, which is kind of unusual. I kept doing it and always looked for places to work out and, and did whatever I could to kind of stay active. And I actually started a an assistant instructor. Um, this was in the um, mid-70s um, as a green belt, and that actually gave me the impetus and the training and learning to be able to start working with other people. So once I did uh, receive my black belt, it was easier to uh, be able to relate to people because I had that kind of working knowledge. Even though I was very young for quite a while, I was very used to it, and I kind of grew up in that whole environment. So it's much easier, I think, to uh, delve into something that you're exposed to quite a bit, it just becomes more natural. And uh, I would say uh, probably the best thing I got out of it is, is my martial arts training, is that it's helped me through a lot of times in my life when I had difficulty with other things. You know, people have ups and downs in their lives. They have crisis and, and happy things. And Kempo is kind of what kept me stable through all that. It always gave me something positive to focus on when things around me weren't that positive. And so in that way, I'm very, very thrilled about it. Um, it's been very good in that way. Um, also, I would say from there, the next big step for me as far as martial arts went, um, I actually was living um, in uh, Vancouver at the time, and I was looking for something to do Kempo-wise, and I was reading the paper, and this was back in the days before there was online or email or anything. So it was basically ads in the paper. And I happened to see this one ad for Kempo Karate classes for $10 a month. And I believe this was in the early 80s. And even then, that was a wonderful price for classes. Yeah, no kidding. Um, even at that time. Yes. Oh, yeah. It was. It's like, come on, you got to do this. 
So I did, and that's where I met John Ellis, um, who was a teacher of mine throughout much of the 80s. And we're still friends to this day. We hang out and we do events together and things like that. And I started there, and actually with him, I was able to get all the curriculum that wasn't I wasn't exposed to in the last school. So it was kind of nice, and I started at the bottom with him to learn everything his way. I didn't want to wear a black belt in a school because I felt uncomfortable because they had much more material than me, but he forced me to. And then when it came to a brown belt, I said, look, I'm not going to wear the black belt anymore. Let me wear a brown belt, and I'll work through the ranks of brown belt, and then I'll actually get my black belt again, and it'll be something to kind of work towards. He said, no, I kind of like – I said, look, if you don't do that, I'll leave. And so he says, okay, we'll do that. So I wore the brown belt then, and it was kind of nice. That kind of gave me a little more impetus to work a little more. It also gave me something to look forward to. Hey, I'm going to get a black belt. So that was kind of nice. That was very helpful um, in the training. Um, I stayed with John Ellis for, I believe I was with the Diamond Dragon School for seven or eight years. Um, that was at a pivotal time kind of in both of our lives. We were in our 20s, and, you know, things were moving right along. And and shortly after that, I moved to uh, um, Portland, Oregon, actually southwest. And it was difficult to get to the classes in Vancouver. I taught for him for a long time. I actually became uh, his second-in-command there. And I remember one time... Uh, he was a um, he worked for the school district and um, was a groundskeeper, and he actually retired a few years ago as the head's groundskeeper for the Vancouver School District. And uh, he was able to use um, gymnasiums back then. We had a, an elementary school gymnasium and a junior high gymnasium we could use because he worked for the school district, so that was one of his benefits. It allowed him to use that in evening times, something you could never ever do now because. You know, a lot of people don't like to use their stuff when they're not around, and also the insurance thing and the liability thing. But that was a wonderful opportunity. And I remember one time in the fall, I can't remember what year this was. It might have been 1986. We had 52 people in class to start out that fall uh, series, which was amazing. So it was wonderful that we had a gymnasium to do that because we couldn't have done it in a commercial school. Plus, because of how the scheduling was and the, and the availability of space, we didn't have a, the school wasn't full-time. It was just uh, three evenings a week and a Saturday morning class. So that did kind of limit, you know, the amount of times people could be around. But, yeah, I think, of course, as always happens, after the fall, people slowly trickle down, and we got our class to a more manageable amount. But I have to hand it to John Ellis. He provided a wonderful um, environment to learn Kempo in a very easygoing mellow fashion, and uh, he definitely knew how to nurture people. He was very good with that. And actually, it was at that point in the early 80s that I got, he taught Tracy's Kempo, that's what I was learning, which is a little different than what I'd learned before. And uh, actually, that was the connection I got with um, Al and Pat Tracy, was actually through him in those early days. Um, And that um, kind of uh, connection there helped me even get farther, because then... It started to be since um, at the time the Tracys were just north of us in um, Bellevue, Washington. It got to the point where I was definitely able to spend a lot more time with them. They'd come down for seminars. And, you know, that's probably where the buck stops as far as the Tracy system goes. Um, sadly, he passed away last October. Um, he was up in age, and which happens. And, of course, which is happening to a lot of people these days, a lot of those ground floor people are just not around anymore because sadly that mortality thing kicks in, especially after 50 or 60 years of active study. And uh, so, you know, that's one of the sad things. But now getting back to where I was, 
I was not able to really work with Mr. Ellis anymore because I could no longer get from Southwest Portland to Vancouver to teach classes. So what I started um, doing is looking around for yet another place. Well, I decided at that time to open my own school in Hillsborough, and I opened in 93. I had a school open through most of the 90s. And when I opened the school at first, I started teaching Kempo Karate. Well, all along, through seminars through Mr. Ellis's school, I had been studying Kosharu Kempo, um, attending seminars when uh, Hanshi Bruce Jednik would come to town. And one of the first places he came after he started was um, Oregon City, Oregon. And the uh, owner of the school there was Larry Kroxberger. And uh, Kurt Van Sickles is big into that in this area also, both been my friend for very many years. And so I decided since uh, the Kempo wasn't, there was no one in my area doing Kempo, I decided, what the heck, I'll try this Kosho. I'd always dabbled in it, I enjoyed it, and it's more accessible, so I'll do that. So um, running my school in Hillsboro, I kept that going. And uh, two nights a week on off school nights, I would travel one to uh, Lake Oswego and one to Oregon City to study Kosharu Kempo with those guys. After a period of time, it got to the point where I started to get um, more involved with Kosho than I did Kempo because there just wasn't a place to really practice or study it. And at first, I taught both arts in my school. And I found that I was basically um, shortchanging both of them because it, the curriculum was too much. There was a, a point, you know, Kempo, the cop is in there. There's many of them, you know, up through the advanced levels of black belt. In Kosharu, there's quite a few also. And it was extremely hard to keep all that curriculum. So I made a change in the mid-90s, and I basically started teaching Kosharu exclusively in my school. Um, sad thing about it is I did lose some students because some of them were there for Kempo, and I totally get that. And then I kept some people who were interested in Kosharu, and then I did that for quite a while afterwards. And the school closed in the late 90s. Um, I was kind of sad about it in a way, but happy about it in another way because I had been working. I got this job working for the county in 1989. And uh, I basically were, I got a job to begin with in community corrections, and I worked in a work release center for the first nine years of my career. And what I did is I supervised inmates' day-to-day, -day, you know, activities in this uh, minimum security correctional facility. And I, when I left there, I was hired by the sheriff's office. I was um, supervising the day shift on that. And then I went to the sheriff's office proper in 1997, and what I was doing then and what I still do mostly is uh, interview inmates and assign them housing in the jail. So that can be kind of interesting. You get a, a good read on people and you get a, a good idea of how people are and aren't and the people that are fake and who aren't. And martial arts has been extremely helpful in that way because when you interact with a lot of people, especially from a teaching and student relationship and vice versa, and then you have these people just wandering in off the streets coming into your school that was extremely helpful for me to be able to interact with some of those people because sometimes the people that wandered in and out were kind of similar to those people, sadly. But I've been doing it ever since. I'm set to retire in uh, January. I'm thrilled about it. I've done my 30 years. I'm tired, and I, I'm hoping to be able to get to spend more time uh, on Kempo and martial arts in general. Anyway, moving right along, I'm studying kosher roof. My school closes in um, Hillsboro. I'm looking around for something to do, and uh, oddly enough, I'm still doing Kosharu. There's, I hear through the grapevine that right down the street from where I live in Hillsboro, Dave Hebler opened a martial arts school. 
um, with a business partner of his locally. And uh, that was like five minutes from my house. So I thought, well, gosh, that's interesting. You know, one of the, you know, the most prominent Kempo seniors moves in five minutes from my house. That's a sign. So I've been doing kosher roof for quite a while now. At that point, probably 10 years or so straight. And so I just went down and started talking to Mr. Hebler. And we chatted up a bit. And I told him, you know, I used to do Kempo. I'm a Tracy guy. And I'm interested in doing it. Anyway, his school was new here. And uh, his business partner was doing a lot of the uh, outside sales and stuff. And Mr. Hebler was basically supervising the day-to-day operations. So I made a deal with him that I would teach Kempo for him, basic, you know. And then he would teach me, you know, advanced. So uh, we got into that relationship. And it was shortly after that that he got injured, sadly. And he was not able to be as active as he wanted to be, which I know killed him. I totally get that. And so me and this friend of mine who were sitting there at the time, we kind of took over most of the day-to-day operations. I mean, he was there. But as far as, you know, the actual physical stuff, we took on doing that. And we kind of kept the program running for him. And uh, he was very thankful for that. And well, we were thankful to have him um, as a resource. It was uh, kind of funny. I'm one of the students that stayed with us after all that time. Um, he actually came in um, inquiring about classes. And it was during the daytime and Mr. Hebler was there. I was not there. And he had him sold on the Kempo classes. And then, uh, then he, uh, Mr. Hebler mentions his attachment with Elvis. And of course, this guy didn't believe him he thought what are you throwing this in for you already had me sold on the Kempo class now you're throwing this out come on you know because he thought he was not being honest <laughs> so ended up uh, he was honest and that's how it was and we had a wonderful time at that school I was there teaching for about two years for him and then um, Mr. Hebler and his business partner had a falling out and there was a guy that was the head of the after school program there who was also a student of mine by that time I'd taken on the teaching of all the advanced people and uh, he ended up purchasing the school, and I stayed on as the chief instructor of the school after Mr. Hebler left. I think he went to Florida at that point. And uh, we started, basically, we called the place Bashir Martial Arts. Um, that student of mine's, um, one of his projects for his fourth degree black belt was to put together a martial arts organization and be able to, uh, you know, um, articulate it, run it, take care of business and everything, which he did. So we became Bushido Martial Arts, and we had a different location. We had to move into a larger location from where Mr. Helper's location was because everything did so well. And we were there about six or eight years, and we had an after-school program, which was a wonderful program because uh, a lot of young people need the ability to be able to be somewhere from after school until their parents get home. And uh, these days, I mean, you almost can't have a successful full-time martial arts program without some kind of a kids program or kids class. And he did really well. He at at the heyday of our school, he had three vans running, picking up kids from school, bringing them back, teaching them martial arts, keep them there till the parents got there. And basically what I did is I taught um, the advanced people there. I didn't have much access with the kids, although I would sub for some of the teachers, you know, when they were out for some reason, which was actually kind of fun. I didn't get a chance to do that. I hadn't really taught kids much at all for many, many years. And it was interesting to get back in and see, you know, kind of where kids are at these days. It's different from when, what it was before. I mean, there's so many other uh, kind of issues and stuff in life that we didn't seem to have when I was a kid, or I don't remember having. It seems to me it'd be much more difficult nowadays to be a, a kid than it was when I was growing up. And I think for those people having some other interests, whether it be 
martial arts or something else would be even more helpful than then because it would give them something to focus, you know, some of their energy on and maybe get out some stress and get some activity and exercise going. We kept that school going um, until about 2008, I think, and then um, it got to be too much um, for the student, and he had finally closed because when you run a, a program like that and it's an after-school program, there's a lot of children and there's long hours because you get there in the morning before the parents go to work so that you can have the kids in your program, and then you're there until after the parents pick them up at night. It makes long days. And he finally just got to be too much, and he said, I can't do this anymore, which I totally understood. So at that point, um, we dissolved the school, and then I kind of went out on my own. Now, I hadn't taught beginners in, at that point in many years. When I was um, started back um, in Kempo with Dave Hevler, I was mostly teaching advanced people, so there was a lot of the material early on that I never really got to touch for a long time. So I went through and tried to get a lot of that back together and got that going. And what was kind of nice is another school had opened in the interim that did Kempo that was kind of a uh, competitor to our school. And it wasn't too far away from that school, like maybe a few blocks. And so I'd seen the guy, he was a student of John Sepulveda and uh, I'd seen him at seminars and stuff around. So I said, Hey, uh, can I come out and like, uh, you know, join your school and work out? And he was kind of leery of me. I didn't know him that well other than at, at uh, seminars. And he had no idea what my interest was or what my goal was. But basically, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to have an opportunity to shut up, stand in line, and do what I'm told. Because for so many years before that, I had to be the one to make sure that occurred with other people. So it was nice to get a break. And everyone's leery at first, you know. When you get relationships like that, when you get senior people from other styles of Kempo to join your school. And I joined his school, and I was at his school until he closed up about seven or eight years after that. I believe that was like 2013 or 14. 2014, he closed the doors. And uh, we had a wonderful relationship, and I love those students. And, and it just, for me, it was a place to... Uh, continue my Kempo study, albeit this was straight American Kempo, pretty similar to what Dave Heller was teaching. But it was just, you know, I just like to be active doing stuff, and that allowed me to do it. And I never really cared later on whether I was at the bottom of the pecking order or the top, as long as I was in the pecking order, because I was there just to work and do stuff and have camaraderie with people and get exercise and, and continue to uh, study this art that kept me going probably most of my life through good times and bad times. The sad thing is since that school, there's been no other Kempo schools around here. I'm not really even able to do the Kosharu thing because it's across town. Lake Oswego and Oregon City is totally across the metro area. And because of how traffic has gotten in the last 15 years or so, 20 years, it's almost impossible to get there a reasonable amount of time in the evening. So it's sadly I've not been able to do that. However, um, after the Cheeto Martial Arts um, School closed, I had a couple students that wanted to continue on and still learn. And so I said, okay, well, here's your project. Come up with another martial arts organization. And that was where the Society for Kempo Studies started. And that basically started in 2008. And it's still going strong to this day. Um, basically, what we do now is we used to hold events at first Oddly enough, the whole SKS um, open house program started as open houses for John Ellis's Kempo School that he would have. 
and we would have people there, you know, old students and everything, do demonstrations and talk to, you know, prospective students and everything. And over time, we invited friends and got people going, and it ended up being much bigger. So we still called it an open house event. But basically what it ended up being is in a, just kind of a venue for area teachers to get together and all teach and bring their students and learn, and it became like a day of fun. And so that became our – it became quarterly. It became most of our focus. Um, the SKS now has um, – sadly, my web guy um, had an um, illness in his family and hasn't been able to help out, so the website's not updated. And I'm not a web guy, sadly, so I'm not able to do anything with that. But we probably have 40 active um, black belt um, teachers. I can't really say students because a lot of them have schools of their own. Um, I enjoy what the SKS has been. It's just basically been a support group for other instructors in the area and a place where people can get together. Anyway, through that group, through one of our events, I uh, learned about uh, up in Seattle, uh, Mr. Todd Durgan and Mr. A.C. Rainey. And I think I met Mr. Durgan in 2010, Mr. Rainey probably in 2011. <clears throat> and uh, they come down and attend my events. They're SKS members. I go up and attend their events. And so my uh, kind of history and tempo journey is continuing on kind of through them. It's funny how, you know, you get all these phases in your training, and one phase is kind of just led to another accidentally. I'm not as active as I used to be, sadly. I would like to be. There's no one doing Kempo around here. I do not have a place even I can really work out. But I do attend seminars, and I teach seminars whenever I can. And I do events with uh, the Seattle Kempo group, who, by the way, they are wonderful Kempo practitioners up there. I mean, they, of course, you know, they're, a lot of them are first-generation guys, and, you know, they're very sharp, as many of them are. And it's been a pleasure because I get to work with them. And they have a wonderful group of students, and uh, I'm just glad I've been able to keep this going. I am hoping once I retire, I'll have more time and I could get more active again, because that sometimes it's extremely frustrating to not be able to do what you want to do because you just don't have uh, basically the venue to do it close by to your house. And so I gave that to you. That's my history, like in a nutshell. And now I'd like to answer any questions you have um, related to any of that that you'd like to know. I would like to go deeper into anything you'd like to hear about. Nice. Okay. Well, thank you for that whole recap there. So uh, one of the things you mentioned was that when you first started training, you really didn't like it in the beginning. So I was wondering, what was it that you didn't like when you started out? Um, I would probably say the thing I didn't like was the fact that I had to do it. I mean, a lot of people seem very, very adverse to being forced to do something. But I didn't enjoy it at first. I was not good at it um, at first. It was a struggle, and it was hard work. Back in those days, it, it was different than it is now, the training and everything. And actually, even back in those days, there wasn't that much difference between Parker lineage and Tracy lineage because at that time, to my knowledge, uh, Mr. Parker had not innovated and changed the system as much as he had a little later than that. And so it was very, very similar. And the training was just harder than And it's not because we were tougher than or anything like that. It's just... I think back then you could get away with more things than you can now. These days it's very difficult in a commercial school. There's boundaries that you didn't have back then. And so I just didn't like it because of having to do it. My father made me do it. I was not good at it. But after a period of time starting to become better, I started to be able to identify that with something that I was kind of okay at. 
And then that helped balance other things in my life that I perhaps was not that okay at, which, you know, when you're a young person, there's a lot of things that you probably could use a little help with. So uh, in that way, it was a slow process, but I finally got to enjoy it. Um, It took a lot of time. I will say this. I did um, take a little bit of time off in the very late 90s and took piano lessons. Um, I have to say I really enjoyed that. And it was something I could do for myself. And I took a a short little break from martial arts. And I found that piano or probably any musical instrument relates almost directly to martial arts in that when you perform a song, you're basically performing a kata. You're doing a certain sequence of movements in a certain timing sequence with certain emphasis on one movement or another. So basically learning a song... um, with an instrument, I did piano, but it could be any instrument, it's kind of like learning a kata. So it came a little easier to me to be able to do that. Okay, I have to do these things on this thing at this timing in this way. And so that really connected with me. If you look deep, I mean, there's so much um, similarities in martial arts training as in other things in life. I mean, people who look for the similarities rather than the differences definitely get a lot farther and there's a lot more out there. It's easy for people to see differences because that's what's most apparent to people. But if you look for the similarities, you'll find that many of that, of those things are not that different from other things that you do. It's just that you haven't looked at them from that perspective. Well said. Uh, so dovetailing off of that question, when you get students that are coming to start their training and they're starting to experience, you know, the same kind of difficulties or similar you know, issues with uh, maybe they're just not getting something as quickly or you know, they're having trouble just even getting the motivation to stay with it. Um, how do you help motivate those guys? Or you know, how do you help motivate those students? Right. In each, um, each student is slightly different, but I found what helps a lot is to not focus too much in the beginning on the minutia. And what I mean by that is giving people too many details too fast out of the gate. A lot of people that come to martial arts as beginners, especially as young people, um, just the fact of them putting on a gi is difficult and getting them to stand a certain way is difficult. So when you teach them a move, I found, from my experience, it's best to basically give them the general overall move first and let them play with that and then start to fine-tune it. Um, A lot of teachers that I know and some that I've had as teachers under me have focused so much on um, the little things that it frustrates the student because, look, I can hardly like stand in this stance and throw this punch. How am I going to do this, 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 and this, and this extra? And I found that as long as you put the layers on slowly over time and definitely recognize um, good practice as opposed to not good practice, that's extremely helpful. A lot of teachers in their um, wonderful desire to pass along something to someone, tend to sometimes give out way too much information too early, and it just overloads the person because not everyone has that knowledge to be able to process that in the same way. Um, Another example like that, um, Intel is big around this area, and I've had a lot of students of mine who are engineers there. Engineers are very intelligent people, very smart, and, you know, they can logic and everything, they work it out well. But if you ever show them a technique, make sure you do it exactly the same way with them every single time or you'll short-circuit them because they have developed a kind of a, a law and a sequence of events in a certain way. 
And to screw up an engineer is to sadly <laughs> teach it in a different way. And then it's like, well, no, wait a minute. It's supposed to be this. Case in point, when I was with Bushido Martial Arts, a lot of our teachers there were Kempo people, but under different lineages. And I did not mind if the techniques were taught slightly different as long as everyone was in the box. I did not mind at all. As long as they were basically, you know, because everyone has a different knowledge base. So depending on what teacher you had, you might be doing this technique, but it might be done subtly different, differently depending on how the teacher learned it and how they interpret it. And that would just short-circuit the heck out of engineers. I mean, they just like couldn't get that because, well, wait a minute, this guy said it was like this. Well, it can be like that. See, I think sometimes people focus so much on things in martial arts that they start to lose kind of the overall idea of it. You know, I mean... There's a reason why you learn techniques. It isn't necessarily to learn that technique well. I mean, certainly that's part of the process that you get going through it. However, the be-all and end-all isn't knowing this technique exactly this way and performing it in the ideal phase. I mean, that's just a stepping stone to other stuff. But you've got to give everyone that slowly because if you overwhelm them, it's like pouring too much um, water down their throat all at once. They're going to choke. <laughs> and sometimes they choke enough they leave. You don't necessarily want that either. True. Um, one benefit for me is I've never really uh, ran a martial arts school for profit or to make a living. And uh, so I've been able to like cut corners that commercial schools aren't able to because they have to pay rent and they have to keep the lights on and things of that nature. So they do have to approach teaching a little differently because they have a different overall kind of a goal we're getting to. And so I recognize that, and that does sometimes change the focus of people and how they teach and what they teach and things of that nature, and I totally get that. Okay. So in that same kind of vein, you mentioned you also you grew up when you were small of stature. Uh, what advice do you have about the benefits that training in self-defense or martial arts you know, in general can kind of bring into your life, you know, being somebody of a small stature myself when I was that age? Well, actually, it, it helped immensely. But I'll, a sad thing is that everyone thinks that once you're studying martial arts, you get good at it very quickly. A lot of people think if you study hard, you'll be like Bruce Lee in six months. Well, sadly, it probably takes eight months or a year, but no. But anyway, it's, it doesn't happen that quickly. So after I studied, started studying martial arts, everyone started to be careful of me. And uh, shortly after that, people were telling the bullies, hey, this is the guy to pick on because he does martial arts. Well, when you're an orange belt, certainly you have a little more knowledge than most people, probably than 80 or 90% of the people, but your skill level is not to the point where you can really say that, oh, I have this down. But what it does do is give you a little more confidence. And that confidence that I built over the years of studying martial arts and teaching martial arts related directly to my job now that I have to um, basically um, supervise inmates and assign them housing and be able to interact with them because if you don't have that confidence in yourself to be able to interact with them, it's difficult to do. And sometimes it can be frightening, but it almost will stop you from being able to do what you have to do. And it's not just inmates in a jail. That confidence will help you with any kind of interaction you have to have with anyone, whether it's a car salesman or a family member or a neighbor or anything. I mean, having that confidence to be able to, you know, make your point and say it and be heard is good. A lot of people sell themselves short by not having the confidence to be able to make their point, and thus they're not able to communicate in the way they want to, and that's a detriment. 
the main thing for me growing up, it wasn't that I kicked anybody's butt. I never really did as a kid. Um, my reputation was bad enough. You learn martial arts, everybody leaves you alone pretty much except the boys, but that's another story. But it's like, it's not that it's, um, defending yourself actually is a very small part of, in my opinion, what you learn martial arts for all the other aspects, the uh, self-discipline, the self-confidence, um, you know, the, um, the health aspects of staying active far outweigh the ability of someone just to hurt someone else. These days, technology is so advanced is very rarely does someone learn martial arts if they want to hurt somebody anymore. They just buy a gun or get a knife or something. It's easier. You know, it's, so that's what a lot of people do. The people that study martial arts generally are into it for those other aspects, like the discipline and the confidence and the conditioning and the health circumstances. So I would say that is probably one of the best things for someone younger, the confidence. The next thing is discipline because a lot of young people these days do not do what they're told when they're told to. And it isn't necessarily because the parents are always at fault, which a lot of people think, well, these days you are given a lot less tools to be able to maintain control of your home environment or your situational environment. So you have to be a lot more, uh, how would I say this? You have to use more approaches to be able to do it. When I was a kid, you know, the old rough and tumble way worked with discipline. These days you have to be use a little more finesse. You can't do it that way. And so another thing that that self-discipline and the self-confidence will allow you to do is later on to be able to take those skills and turn them into a way to communicate or relate to someone on a way that you may not be used to doing it before. Because everyone reacts to different stimulus as far as an interaction. Not everyone's the same. Some things people work, some um, aspects work on people, other ones don't. So you have to be able to like know some different aspects and be able to switch from one to another. And that's where that confidence comes in from when you're young, learning it over and over in the discipline, being able to stick with it. Well said. So in that same vein, uh, how do you help a student that comes in and maybe they've, uh, you know, you can tell by when they walk in the door, either they've either had something that's happened that's negative and they've got, you know, a mental block where, you know, they really want to learn something that'll help them either learn that confidence or learn how to defend themselves but they've just got this mental block where they, you know, the idea of getting out on the mat is just completely frightening to them. So how do you help those people get through that? What I normally will try to do is pair them up with someone similar to them in age and situation to have them work a little more closely with so that they can have someone kind of to use as a guide. If, if in the first class all they do is watch that other person, that's okay. But I think, for, especially for a young person or someone new, it's nice if they can have someone to relate to. When it comes to kids, you know, I mean, a lot of them let their parents come to class, and that's good. Well, that's helpful, but the child usually will do it along with their parents because their parents are saying do it. But it's harder for them to relate to them because, number one, they're their parent. And you just have a different relationship with your parent than you would with maybe someone who might be a peer who's done this a little longer, who is kind of in your same situation and had a lot of the same problems you did. Well, hey, see what Joe's doing over there? Yeah, he started out just like you. You just kind of do a little bit at a time. You know, you just stand this way. You put this, put out front, watch what he's doing. You know, and you have him, you kind of reinforce it that way a little at a time. Some people never really get it. Um, as a matter of fact, I had a student some years ago. He was a Navy man, and he came to study martial arts. About as awkward a guy as you'd ever see, I mean, as far from a, a martial arts standpoint. Really, he was. it was difficult to look at him. 
And I thought, well, this guy's not going to make it even through Orange Belt for sure because he's going to get so frustrated. Well, he made a liar out of me, and he made it all the way to black. He left after first-degree black, and at black belt, he was still awkward. But I'll have to tell you what, he made like a 1,000% improvement on how awkward he was in that process, in that five- or six-year process. It was just amazing how far he'd come. But if you look at him, he still looks awkward. It's weird. One of the things that I had a problem with, I picked out certain senior martial artists who I really respected. I wanted to be just like them. I wanted to move like them. I wanted to understand like them. I want to do everything like them. But the problem is, as you're doing it, and when you get too much of that in your mind, you focus on it so much that it becomes detrimental to your learning because you are not them. You do not know what they know, and you maybe will never move like them. And so sometimes you'll be giving yourself goals that you will not be able to attain. You can't get as good as them. All you can do is get as good as you can be. And in order to do that, you have to kind of accept how they are, but just work on you a little bit at a time, baby steps, a little better. The biggest thing I tell students, you have to work through the plateaus. Everyone has plateaus. Many people, more than half the people quit through the plateaus. But, you know, if you can stick through the plateau, I guarantee you'll always be better when you carry on and when you catch back up to where you were. It's easy. To, I don't know why people have plateaus, but I think everyone kind of does. And that's one of the biggest detriments, I think, to martial arts training. Because people get to the point where they think, oh, I'm not getting anywhere. I'm not getting any progress. Hey, any minute or any hour that you are in class and you are working out, you are getting progress. You just come to a point in your training that sometimes the progress is not as easy to see in yourself, especially not yourself. We're, we're all our hardest um, critics, you know. So it's extremely difficult. And sometimes you think, oh, the teacher's just telling me that, you know, because he wants me to like. But no, every, t every hour you spend in class, you're getting better, whether you notice it or not. And it's a law above what's in the mind. It's just physics. Anytime you practice something more, you just get better at it. And even if it's another minute, if someone practices something a minute longer than someone else, they're a minute better than that person. And that's just how it goes. But sometimes it's hard to see that as a person because those plateaus sometimes last a while. And, uh, and oftentimes people do not reach their potential, sadly, because they don't keep going. And that's where the discipline comes in that you learn all along. I mean, if you don't have that discipline, you'll leave right away. Same time you have one bad class, you might want to leave right away. If you don't have the discipline to understand that, hey, this is a process, it's not a thing. I have to just keep going through it and keep doing it. Keep showing up, get my card punched, get in class, work out, go home, come back the next day. That's the key. Most people don't get that. They think, if I'm not good in like a year, I'm never going to be. Well, that's not how it works. But, you know, I think society has kind of thrown that in there, too, a little bit. That's that's such a key point, though, is just you know, that consistency is what really matters. I mean, you know, what's... The, the whole goal setting piece and in our society it goes it's, it's all short attention span theater but you know martial arts is not a short attention span thing martial arts is a lifetime endeavor if you really want to you know learn what you need to learn out of it um it what, definitely is what do you think is the balance between your own self-image and then how much you rely on your instructor to help guide you through those plateaus um i think an instructor probably only gives you the key and you have to open the door yourself they should be a motivator, and they should be someone there to be on your side, but they can't really carry you through it, so their role should only be of, like, a mentor. Look, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to do it, and if someone's having a problem doing it, you help them with that. 
But sometimes the problem with doing it isn't with really doing it. The problem is getting the discipline to be able to practice it. I've had students that I've had as private students that would, you know, I would teach them a technique or two in a class or part of a kata, and they would go home, and a week later, they wouldn't be any farther, and it's because they never practiced. Well, I would allow that to go on three or four times. You know, because sometimes people get busy. You know, a lot of people, like me, work and have to squeeze in their martial arts training in their spare time. But pretty soon I say, look, you need to, like, stop this. I'm uncomfortable taking your money because you're not getting any better, and it's not because you can't. It's because you just don't practice. You, there's not enough practice for me showing you two techniques for you to get that technique and come back and learn more next time. Don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing people like don't get. It's not, it's not like riding a bike. Even now I've noticed, even though I've been less active for a few years, I still get around. I do benefit seminars and sit on test boards and things of that nature. But I found already my skills degraded fairly significantly just because I don't get to touch all the stuff I know as often as I would like. And that's another reason I'm kind of looking forward to retirement and, you know, an opportunity to do that more. I could have been, you know, I'm an okay martial artist, but I could have been so much better if I could have done that for a living only because I would, I would have been able to apply 25 or 30 more hours a week to it. And once you're good at something, doing it maybe eight or 10 hours a week, imagine how much better you can get doing it 10 or 15 more hours a week. Oh, totally. So I do regret that in a way. Yeah, but most people have other jobs that are things they have to do. So, you know, you have to consider that also. You know, so you got to say, hey, you know, if you don't practice this, you got to go because I'm, it gets to the point that even though they're paying me, it's not worth my time anymore because I also like the feedback of someone who is doing it right and gets it right and is learning. I need to have that too. And if I don't get that, well, you got to give that to me too. I mean, this is like a give-take, this, stu- this teacher-student relationship. It's a symbiotic thing. It's not just like me showing you and you doing it. We have to like do this together and we have to learn together. I've learned more from my students or as much as I've learned from teachers. And it's from dealing with different personality types, teaching them certain things, and being able to adapt to the ways that different people learn these different things. And then the questions they ask that sometimes you've never been asked before. And then all of a sudden you have to come up with an answer for it. Or you seem kind of like you're slow. And you don't want to really do that. So, so yeah, you got to come up with something. So that's been as probably as significant a teacher as the teachers I've had. I don't think anyone can reach their potential in martial arts as far as um, even how much they know and can do unless they teach others. And I think that's one of the reasons why at the black belt levels people are encouraged to teach because you don't really realize your potential until you have students. They're the ones who really test you. The test, you're just parroting back, you know, what you've learned. And, you know, before that test, that teacher knows you know what you're supposed to do. They watch you do it the whole time, and they've trained it to you, right? They've, mm-hmm. they've showed you. They've seen you do it. So they know unless you have test anxiety or unless you black out and hit your head, you're probably going to pass that test more than likely because I know you know the material. So later on, you get better by teaching the material. And that just gives you like a deeper understanding of it. You know, I didn't realize how well I knew the orange belt techniques until I was a black belt. You know, it's a weird thing to say, hey, I learned in the orange belt. But by the time you're black belt, you've looked at them and taught them and told people about them so many times, you're a lot better than even right after you learned them. Mm-hmm. You know, and you get that way with everything as you go. And, uh, you know, the discipline, you know, to keep going, that's kind of the main thing. For me, you know, once I got black belt, okay, you know, I was fine. Okay, that, that was one goal. And then, you know, a few months later, oh, I got to get that secondary black belt. That was a goal, you know. Then you work on that, and you get that secondary black. Okay, I'm good. I, that's my goal. I'll stop. 
Then six months later, oh, I got to get that third degree black belt. But see, if you don't have that burning desire to learn all the time and the discipline to stick with it, it kind of goes away. I mean, you you can actually kind of dynamite your own submarine by just not sticking with it. And you never reach your potential. Of course, you'll never know you didn't. But no one really knows what they can do or how well they can do something until they try with all their heart and their soul. Not just like trying like I showed up in class and went to the moves. No, I mean to really try. And you're the only one who knows whether you're really trying or not. No one really knows the uh, what it took to become that black belt or whatever level it was, except for you, because you had to do it. I mean, they can guess. They have an idea. And other people who have been through it probably know. But no one, like when you talk to your average like layperson, they have no idea. And many of them have never done anything to that level or stuck with one thing that long to achieve a, a level of, of experience or expertise in something. It just takes a long time. You've got to do it over and over and over again, and you can't quit. And that's really it. It's, it's really just that consistency. And part of that is you know doing what your instructor is asking you to do, and part of that is you've got to put in the practice time. That's, you know, there's no substitute for yep. it in martial arts. There really isn't. No, and uh, every chance you get, if you're in a position to teach people, take advantage of that because that will uh, make you wonderfully better than you'd ever guessed. Yep. And, Speaking uh, of, you know, some... Go ahead. Go ahead. Sometimes, you know, I've had people from time to time come in and out of my school. Um, you know, many of the people that come into my school and say this or that are, are not necessarily being truthful with you, and I get that. And after a while, you learn how to kind of set that. But one of the most wonderful times that I have um, teaching a class is when I have somebody come in who's like a senior from Kempo, remind me a senior, some black belt, you know, instructor level, or above, and they come in and they can do what they say they can do, and they are who they say they are. That is such a wonderful thing because, you know, you have a lot of people come in and you're not sure at first because I've had a lot of people come in and say this or that, and a lot of them, like, can't get through short one, you know, and, Okay, or, you know, when they, oh, show me the your favorite kata. They show you short, too. It's like, well, that's great and everything, but you got to have, you know, if you're a teaching level, you probably have something above that, and there must be something you like more than short, too. Anyway, I had this guy come in from Wyoming, a wonderful practitioner, and uh, he was a third-degree black at the time, and uh, I was with Bushido Martial Arts, and uh, Jason Brick was actually the owner of the school. He said, hey, I had this friend of mine come into town, and, and he's like a third-degree black belt in Wyoming in Kempoa. Can he join you know, our advanced class? I said, well, sure he can. And then, you know, in the back of my mind, automatically what pops up, oh, whenever someone says that, you know, you get kind of jaded sometimes. Whenever someone says, I don't know about that, well, let's, okay, let's come in. And since he was someone new, we went through, you know, a, a, a lot of stuff, and I found out, wow, this guy is great. He's, like, wonderful. And so I said, okay, well, we're going to do katas now. And that was, we, I got to sit and watch wonderful katas done. I mean, to me, that's one of the most exciting things when you have someone come in that you don't know that you can relate to because they know the same stuff you do and they, while they may not have been into it as long as you have or put as much effort into it, you can tell it's important to them and they work it and they work it hard. For me, even though they're not students of mine, that is one of the, the best times I have. If people come into the school, wow, it is wonderful to see this. There's other people doing this. They're in the box. It's great. Yeah, that's some of the best times I ever have. That's awesome. But sadly, yeah, eight out of ten of them who come into the school usually aren't exactly what they say they're going to be, you know, or who they are. But no, when you get that, that's almost like having a student pass the black belt test to me, you know, because it's like, cool, someone else puts in effort, they put in time, and they do this, they do this to a certain level, and they've done well. I mean, they've 
they have nothing to be ashamed of. They have stayed the course. That's awesome. Okay, so um, it's kind of in the same vein again, but we're dovetailing just slightly off of here. One of the other things you mentioned was when you were switching instructors, one of them had you wear a black belt, even though you didn't want to, right? Uh, I've got correct. I've I've started over. Uh, I, I don't remember how many times now in my martial career, just because I like to learn things. Um, and I just kind of made it a policy a while back that I just wear whatever belt the instructor tells me to wear. If I walk in and I wear a white belt and they tell me here wear this instead, then I wear that instead. You know, whatever it is. Uh, how do you personally handle that when you get a student that comes to you? You know, let's say not from a Kempo lineage, but from something completely different. You know, you got a you know, Taekwondo or Hapkido or you know, somebody from a totally different style of martial arts. They come in but they made it to black or even, you know, degrees in black, you know, at the other place. How do you handle that uh, when they walk into your school? I'm a Therakempo person, and I have seen what they can do, and it's commensurate with the belt they're wearing or within the ballpark. I usually don't have a problem with them wearing their belt. If they're from another art and join the class, I usually don't. And it's not because of me. It's not because I don't respect it. It's because other students in the class who aren't familiar with that person look at that person wearing a black belt, but it's a different art. And so they're not performing the same things in the same way. So sometimes a student could kind of misunderstand, you know, what the curriculum is because, oh, this person has a black belt in this. And they just automatically assume it's the same thing. Well, everyone thinks there's one, you know, standard board that regulates every martial art and everyone goes in front of this board and all the standards are the same. Well, they aren't. Now, if they're taking like private lessons or if it's a small advanced class, no problem at all. But if it's a regular class, no, I usually have them um, wear the belt that's appropriate in that art, only for mostly the benefits of the other students, not mine. Like I say, if it's advanced class, they, they wear whatever they want. I don't mind at all. Seminars that I do or put on, people wear whatever they want. I have no idea who a lot of these people are. They can wear whatever they want to do, you know. That's mainly how I do it. I'm pretty live and let live. I've never been really a, a, a title guy either, although I've been drugged through it, kicking and screaming, you know, many times. When I was young and coming up, I was a title guy, but not so much anymore. After a while, you know what you know, and you know how you know it and how you learned it, and so that stuff isn't important anymore. Um, I've heard people before answer the phone, hi, this is master so-and-so. And, you know, I know that some people's arts require that, especially when they're in a business aspect. But to me, it's like, oh, that's calling myself something. I go by the traditional Japanese thought to whereas you never represent yourself in a certain way. If someone else wants to represent you as that, that's their business. And they usually know if you have humility, they don't represent you in that way in your presence. But you might discuss it, hey, master so-and-so, whatever. But yeah, for me, you know, a lot of times they'll call me master this or this or that. And when I'm with the student, I said, tell you what, when you and I are just working, you can just call me Milt. <laughs> or if you want to Mr. Gannett, that's fine. But, you know, when your teacher's around, you call me whatever he says to. But, you know, as far as you and I are working, you just call me Milt. We're good. Said, yeah, yeah, that's cool. But, see, for me, I've never – when I was young and starting out, I liked the titles. You know, first, second, third, maybe fourth degree of black belt was okay. But after a while, it gets to the point where that almost becomes cumbersome. And I figure everyone in the room knows who people are by how they move and how they conduct themselves. So you technically don't have to have – a title. Everyone will just know when they interact with you who you are. But I do understand that some from a business standpoint have standards of how they introduce themselves. I totally get that. But I, I was a, at a, a seminar I was doing one time and they introduced me as uh, Master Gannett. And I'm sitting next to one of the other people who knows me and I said, 
boy, that person doesn't know me very well, do they? And they laugh, said, no, they don't. Because I wouldn't like that, you know? They know, okay, we'll do that. But yeah, I mean, everyone assumes. And, and one time I was at a seminar and they said, what would you like my students to call you? Um, Milt. <laughs> That's what I prefer. Well, we can't let him do that. I mean, what, what really? And he threw out a couple. You know, I said, well, how about just sensei? You know, I'll have to take something sensei. I have to go with the title. Let's go with that. And, you know, that's okay. That just says teacher. It's not assuming anything. But if you get someone who's a traditional Japanese martial artist and you uh, refer to them in a way in their presence that they don't feel like they maybe measure up to, that will offend them indirectly that you're referring to them as that because they would not think of themselves as that. So it's almost like, look, you're overselling me. Right. Whereas you probably aren't. They probably really are that, you know? I mean, that level. But yeah, that's usually you don't... Um, give those titles you you call them what they want to be called now if they're you're not in their presence you call them whatever is appropriate but for me i haven't liked that because that makes an assumption another thing unless i'm at an official testing event or something i don't wear like an official belt because people have high expectations of people that have these official looking belts and uh, there's some days that i'm not up to snuff and then there's a lot of people who have the same rank as me that are far more up to snuff to it than i am you know, and so I just don't want that pressure. You know, I just throw on the old black belt and we're going to go, you know. I have one I wear of it that's unassuming to most of the events. But, yeah, and that's just because I've been in situations before where I'm wearing stripes, usually earlier on, and I make some stupid mistake, and I look down at my belt, and I'm thinking, you idiot. Well, <laughs> I'm more of an idiot if I'm wearing that belt, right? So I'd rather just have a plain one. Actually, one time I showed up in class um, on Halloween, and I was wearing a white belt. And everyone thought I was making some statement. As a matter of fact, uh, the teacher who was teaching that class at the time said, Gannett Sensei, are you trying to make a statement? Yes, sir. Happy Halloween. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that was it. <laughs> everyone says, well, why don't you wear a uniform on Halloween? No, you're supposed to go with something you're not going. You know, so I'll wear a white belt on Halloween. Whenever I conducted class on Halloween, I wore a white belt. Yeah. But no, I mean... That has never really been important to me, but I do know some disciplines and, and some of their business plans and, and their traditions, they require that, and that's fine. But I cringe when people call me that, but that's just a me thing. I'm not recommending everyone should do that or anything. No, it's, it's whatever they're comfortable with and what they, yeah, whatever their art tolerates and what, what they want to do. I mean, most people know who I am, I and mean, because I have videos out, I've had people from other countries come up and compliment me, like people from South America. I mean, I'm in a seminar, you know, and there's all these people from all over the world, and people from South America tell me how much I love my videos. Well, if you've ever seen my videos, I get mixed reviews on them. But it's nice to know that people from South America like them, and maybe they're just being polite. But it's just nice to know that someone from South America is even taking the time to watch them, you know? So it's like, yeah. And I know that rank is relative to the person, you know, and the art. And there's just not a standard. So it'd be hard for me to say I'm this or that. When people ask me what my rank is, I say, well, it depends on who you ask, which is true. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm in the mix somewhere, but there's a lot of people in my rank that are far better, and there's a lot of people that are far worse. So, you know, what do you say? Because there's not a standard, you know. So I don't like to call myself a certain thing. That makes sense Because you could get egg on, egg on your face. Yeah. Okay. So let's uh, let's go into a little bit of, of curriculum-wise, since you've had experience across a bunch of different areas in the Kepo world. I want to preface this. This is the... Question specifically for Milt Gannett on his view of these particular things, because Ken, you know, Ken politics is ridiculous these days. But uh, what do you? Yes. What, what is your personal view, the Milt Gannett personal view on the similarities between Tracy's and American Kempo and Kosho? 
Well, um, Traces in American Kempo has a fair amount of similarity. Um, Kosho is a kind of a different animal. Um, Tracy, of course, um, claims that he taught the, this teaches the same thing that Ed Parker taught him at the beginning. I don't really know. I wasn't there at the beginning, but I do know that the techniques have pretty much remained the same um, since I started. Um, the technique lists were longer. There was 40 techniques per belt when I started, and it was uh, at that time. It, I think it was a Parker school, but they were basically doing the Tracy stuff. The names were all. I think back in those days, it didn't matter as much. You know, I mean, it's like. They teaching Kempo as Kempo. But I feel that sometimes Kempo is such a uh, curriculum heavy art that sometimes people get pushed away just for the amount of material. And especially when you're running a commercial school and you know you have goals and you have things you want to do, sometimes, you know, those have to be adjusted. And I agree with some adjustment here and there. Maybe forty is too much. I think thirty is okay. But it also depends on how deep you go into it. And Tracy's, other than the names, is fairly similar. I have found this, and this is just my personal opinion. The curriculum stuff, everyone argues back and forth. I think it's pretty much a wash, okay? Um, the Parker's uh, system techniques, by and large, are longer and more intricate. But the Tracy system has more. To me, that's a wash. I mean, they have, they have variations and everything, okay? To me, wash. The katas, okay? Tracy's has a lot more katas than the Parker system, generally, my opinion. But, but the Parker system has those sets and those other things. So it's a wash. I mean, it's like, it, just, it all depends on how you want to like look at it. I see them as pretty much similar. It's just a different way to go about the same thing. Um, what was most difficult when I started um, teaching for uh, Mr. Hebler was the names the techniques were different. A lot of them I knew from Tracy's, although they were done slightly different. He gave me a manual, you know. One of the first classes I did, you know, I was supposed to teach um, beginners with him, and he throws me out in the intermediate class. And he said, ah, here's a manual. You know, I've just come off 10 years of kosher. I hadn't done much careful at all. And when I did, it was Tracy, so I had to be a quick study, you know. <laughs> but I found looking through them, the names were different, but a lot of the techniques were very similar. Okay, I can do that. Okay. And then I kind of glanced at what, you know, what was different. And, you know, but those aren't too bad. Now, kosheru, as I learned it, and there's different strains of that also, is a different animal. Now, the person who developed the lineage of kosheru that I did started out as a Kempo guy. So, um, you know, he had that base in common with the rest of us. But what he did is basic um, traditional Japanese martial arts, um, along with the concepts taught to him, uh, allegedly, by James Montessor. Now, did he teach them around to him? I don't know. I wasn't there. However, I loved what he was doing because he gave me... Uh, a deeper understanding of the techniques I was doing, not because they were longer or more intricate, but he the the uh, concepts actually focus more on technical aspects of weight and balance, alignment, positioning, center, stuff like that. And when I first went to a seminar in Kosheru, I had 20 years of Kempo under me. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm coming here, all this stuff I'm hearing, I've never heard of this stuff before. And you'd figure someone who had been doing it that long would know about that. Well, I had no idea. So basically what they do is they break everything down to you know, like exact movements and they focus on center, balance, position, that kind of stuff. Well, when you couple that with your Kempo techniques, it actually makes them, I think, better. Because some of them that are not structurally as sound as they could be, you can make them that way based on how you understand it and how you understand movement, motion, and, and uh, alignment. A lot of the techniques we learn, in my opinion, in the ideal phase, 
would be difficult to pull off because there really isn't any ideal phase. No one exactly steps forward with a punch right from 12 o'clock from a certain distance. I mean, there's always these little adjustments you have to make, and that's what all the years of practice and learning all the different techniques do, in my opinion. It allows you to make those adjustments quicker and easier. Well, sometimes how you apply the technique based on where the opponent is after the attack is going to change totally the technique you're going to do. And if you don't have that other technique or the movements in your mind, you're going to have, it's going to take you like a half a second or a second to come up with another answer other than the original thing you have going. Therefore, if you are, if your positioning isn't good and your centering isn't right and your balance isn't good and you don't connect with the opponent in a way that you cause a kind of a little disruption in them, you may not have enough time to pick the next technique. I mean, back when I started, I remember, you know, you were facing somebody, you know, like an, even in class or wherever, it was like, okay, if they throw a right punch, I'm going to do this technique. If they throw a left punch, I'm going to do this technique. And, well, that's all well and good, but you never know what they're going to throw. And a lot of people are really tricky about it until it's halfway on the way to you. So you can't really pick your technique ahead of time. But you can pick a concept or a theory or a movement or a positioning ahead of time, which will kind of cover as many different attack um, you know, directions or modes that can be. Sure, every once in a while, everyone's off. That happens. You have off days. People even really good, you know, they get hit. People get hit. That's just how it is. But that'll just put you in a better way from a preparatory standpoint to be able to apply your art because now you have ways to disrupt their emotion and put yourself in a better position to be able to have more time to pick the technique you want to use. And I don't necessarily say very rarely when I do them, when I'm doing the free flow stuff, and you've probably seen some of my under advanced Kempo, I have videos where we do the free flow stuff, but it, it's rarely a technique exactly as it's written in the manual. It's usually like a part of it. And it depends on where the opponent is when they punch, where I connect with their body, and where my weapons are in relation to them at that time. And if you get too focused on the exact, um, you know, movement or study or motion of that specific technique, you can cause a disconnect in your head because this next movement is supposed to be this. Well, it may not be able to be that. And so you have to be able to apply something different and you have to do it really, really quickly. I mean, you don't really have a lot of time. And so that's what I believe the techniques are, are taught for. And studying Kosho gave me a lot deeper knowledge into that. I recommend anyone study something like that. I mean, I did um, Bruce Jennick lineage, but there's a couple different lineages. But any art that allows you to look at, at structure, movement, motion, and positioning goes well with Kempo, or it actually goes well with any art. Now, the people who developed this art were Kempo people, so you didn't have to worry too much. I mean, you knew how to kick and how to punch, and you knew the hand combination, so that comes a little more simply. Um, but, I mean, learning these other things on top of your techniques really, really pulls you know, a lot of the wonderful stuff out of your art because you learn techniques and some people focus on them so much that becomes the only reality. But in real life, in my opinion, you're only taught those techniques to learn a concept and a motion and a rhythm to movement. And, you know, one creates another, you know, you do um, the motions where you have techniques that are connected and, you know, things like that. Well, you never know where you're going to have to go in a situation. And so you just have to go somewhere, though. And so you have to have a good idea that you're going to do something. But it can't be so specific as you're going to move in a certain way because you never know where that opponent's going to be when you have to do this certain thing. Does that make sense, kind of? 
Yeah, it makes sense to me. <laughs> okay. I hope I explained it well. It's hard without showing it, but yeah, that's kind of how it is. I mean, to me, uh, the techniques, you know, the, is like a buffet. You have to try it all to know what you like and what you don't like, but you'll tend to go back to the stuff you like and get seconds or thirds or whatever. It's kind of the same. Now, as a teacher, you can't totally get rid of the stuff you don't like. And to be honest, there's a lot of techniques that I don't like. I don't like teaching them. I don't like doing them. They don't work for me. But it's part of the program, and you got to teach them. You just apply them as best you can. And different people are going to be able to apply them differently based on their knowledge background, their size, and their ability, and their timing and stuff. So there isn't any really bad techniques. There might be bad techniques that are not favorable to me, but other people, I love those techniques, and I found that wherever I go. How the heck do you make that work? And they show me, oh, cool. That was the way I didn't like to think of doing it. You know, it's like, so it isn't, I mean, it's kind of a personal thing, but you can't hold on to anything too tightly because it's like the monkey with his hand in the jar, you know? You want to grab this thing out of the jar? Well, if you go into the jar and you hold on to something too tight, you can't pull your fist back out of the jar. you got to loosen it up to get out of there. And I found the same thing as with that in chemo techniques and curriculum. You can't hold on to anything too tightly because then you will not be able to experience the parry rather than the grab. You know, Sometimes the parry is more appropriate. You can't do that when you're holding on to any one thing hard and fast. Yeah, and that, that does require a certain level of experience with it to understand the differences too, though. Yes, yeah, so exactly, yeah. Yeah, and another reason that I, I have a harder time now with um, beginners, not that I'm that much better or not, it's just that it's harder for me to relate with them because a lot of my training now um, is just not on that level anymore, so it's harder for me to do it. There, when I was with Bushido Martial Arts and afterwards, I was able to uh, you know, teach just advanced people, and there's pros and cons to that. Um, the pro is, of course, you stay really good on the advanced stuff, but the con is you tend to, it's not like riding a bike, so you're not as up on the other stuff. And to be a complete martial artist, especially in Kempo, you have to be pretty clear on all you know, the techniques and forms, you know, as it's taught in, in some lineage or some um, practice or what you do. Now, what I have found these days, is a lot of people cut the um, requirements for techniques down a lot. And I do understand from a commercial standpoint that that has certain advantages. But I think if you still go too quickly with them and they don't like it to involve themselves as deeply in the technique as they could, that they'll miss a lot of the wonderful tips of information they'll get out of it. I mean, there's so much more to a technique than just learning it. You have to apply it and apply it a lot of different ways and a lot of different timings. And if you glance over the, the material too quickly, okay, you got that technique, let's move to the next one. And if you don't revisit it again, it's really, really difficult to have those building blocks to be able to build on the next thing. Um, one thing I learned when I took my... Um, the Kimbo with Mr. Ellis, when you got the third brown, you had to test on everything else again. You know, you had to test everything from yellow belt up. At that point, it was yellow belt, but that just had been added not too long before. And uh, when you got to black belt, you had to test on everything again. But the other tests, you didn't have to test on everything. You know, it wasn't required. But it was required at certain intervals to have to look at everything again. So you couldn't just take things and discard it. You had to, like, keep at least an understanding of it. And uh, actually, when I took my... Uh, Secondary black belt test. I had to go through everything again. That was one of the requirements. And uh, I was really good. I loved the first brown techniques, the Tracy first brown techniques. I was the best at those. I loved them. I could do them inside and outside. So when it came to the test, Mr. Ellis said, okay, you don't have to do these, but you have to name all of them. And you could only be wrong by four. So I just had to name all the techniques in that belt list, 30. 
And that was hard because I wasn't thinking about that, you know. And I missed four. Just barely enough to pass. Nice. But yeah, that's another way you can... Yeah, he knew that I knew the material. No, let's, let's attack this from a different angle. Okay, just name the techniques. Yeah. But see, if you weren't going through them and know them, you couldn't even really do that. I mean, right. it's such an involved thing. And there's a lot of people now who teach a Kempo curriculum and also add other stuff to it. I found for most people, just a straight Kempo curriculum is a lot of material. And then if you add another art to that and teach both of them together, people aren't going to reach their potential because they're going to be stretched too thin, in my opinion. You know, students, they'll just learn too much. I mean, it gets to the point where, you know, everyone says, well, you can add stuff, but you shouldn't subtract it. Well, a lot of those people say that don't really look at it from a Kempo standpoint because already if you do the traditional Kempo, it is already so requirement heavy. It would be hard to add too much more if you know what I mean, and, and be able to, uh, you know, get through stuff like in a matter of years, you know? No, totally. It is a matter of uh, when you get to a certain point, you've got so much material, you just can't do anything with it. Yes. You know, unless you really have the time that, to devote to it, so. Right. And sadly, since I have a full-time job, I just don't have that time anymore. <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, commercial schools, I get it because – they have a goal. You know, they want people to uh, advance. They want them to see their advancement. It needs to be at reasonable levels. And not everyone, you know, advances at the same speed or in the same way. And so I kind of get that. I mean, you have to have a balance. But if you cut it down to 10 or 15 techniques, people should know those really, really well, in my opinion, even if that's all you teach. I mean, they should really have those down. Like, they should be able to do them in their sleep. And maybe they do while sleeping. You would know if you're wearing one of those sleep directors. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he did snapping twig in his sleep tonight. Hey, let me come up with that, a Kempo-related sleep tracker. It'll tell you what technique you moved like in your sleep. Hello, right into Terminator series. <laughs> That's it? Yes, exactly. So we've covered a whole you know, broad range of subjects there. You even got a chance to talk a little bit of curriculum differences between a bunch of the Kempo lineages, so that was pretty cool. One thing we, we touched on earlier, but we didn't really go into a whole lot of details on, was the Society for Kempo Studies. So uh, would you like to expand upon that a little bit and tell us a little more about that? Sure. Um, I'll be happy to do that. When uh, Bushido Martial Arts um, ended up um, not being anymore due to a change in business and things, the students that were still around at the time wanted to put together another um, group so that we could um, you know, get together and have events and have kind of a body which people can like progress through. Um, that's popular these days. And I think it's kind of a good idea. I mean, it's good to have other people other than just yourself, you know, rate and look at the students and see how it's going. I mean, nothing's ever going to be exactly, you know, regimented and perfect and the same everywhere, but it's nice to have more than one hand um, when it comes to testing. So we wanted to get together a group to do that. So we put together this group, uh, my students and I, mostly my students developed our patch and uh, we'll be ours, a bunch of like-minded martial artists who aren't into politics who just get together and work out at regular intervals whenever we can. Now, we do have students that aren't in this area, the Northwest area, and certainly they're welcome to any of our events, but they don't normally attend, And but they're still members in good standing. And what we do is we used to do it four times a year. It's gotten down to like once or twice a year now. Um, we do events where we, I invite people from all over this area. We find a place to do it, figure out how much it's going to cost. It normally only costs each student $5. We try to keep it really low. We want the fee so low that someone says, hey, I can't not go. It's only five bucks. So uh, we don't want money to be a reason 
to keep people away. I know a lot of events, that's a big reason, and we don't want any part of that. And the money we do collect only pays for the venue because we need a bigger place than any of our schools um, can handle any one time. We get these people together. Um, I invite people. What I do, based on who shows up at the events, we normally get around 30, 35, sometimes less, sometimes more people at the events. And uh, what I do then is I take a list, and I start at the top of the rank scale, and I ask people if they would like to present or teach a portion of the day's curriculum. And uh, m- most often people are willing to do it. Um, depending on our time frame, we usually do about three hours. That normally puts about eight people in it for about 20 minutes each. And if we have uh, less people teaching, everyone gets longer. But what we do is I just pick, I, in that case for me, rank has its privileges. I go from the top down and I just ask people in a line, look, would you like to present? Where, where do you want to be on the list? And so I put them in there and then, one instructor teaches. Now, these are all Kempo and related arts. However, we've had other arts also, but the main thrust is Kempo and related arts. But we've, you know, people go 20 minutes and then someone else gets up there and teaches. And they're all very prominent people in this area. I mean, most of our uh, our uh, seminars, we, because of the amount of people and the amount of talent that's there, it's rare that anyone under fourth degree black belt ever just gets an opportunity to teach because there's just so many other people that want to do it. Not that that's bad. We have had a one or two events where um, you know, we've had to, we've actually had to compel people to do it before. And I've had teachers actually tell me because someone's getting ready for a certain pivotal test that they have me kind of compel them to teach, which is uncomfortable, but it's more fun than uncomfortable because their teacher said, do it. Okay, we'll do it. So that's fun. But basically we all just get together and have a good time. We take a little break for 10 minutes in the middle and uh, people get a lot of material and they learn from a lot of uh, very skilled people with hundreds of years of experience. And it costs five bucks and it goes for about three hours. We've been doing it now since about 2008 in this program. So it's been just about 10 years now, maybe just less. And it's been very successful. Um, we don't have any politics. There's nothing to argue about. There's no fees. I mean, if you want a patch, I'll sell you a patch. Um, if To be a member, all you have to do is be um, someone that I know of that's interested in a Kempo-related art or someone that one of the other members knows and can vouch for as long as you're legitimate. From time to time, you do get people who solicit um, membership just because they want to see their name on a list somewhere with a rank attached to it. And unless they're, uh, I know who they are or they're recommended by one of the other members, I usually don't accept them. And that has nothing to do with whether they are or not you know, qualified to do it. It's just we don't know, and we're kind of a more mom-and-pop thing, so we tend to stick you know, with people we know. But that doesn't mean that someone couldn't show up at an event sometime. I mean, anyone's welcome. I mean, that's just for membership that we have to know. But anyone can come. We invite anyone. We've had Taekwondo people. We've had kind of everybody there. And it's just a group of like-minded individuals that get together for trainings as regularly as possible. Most of them are held in this Hillsborough area, Portland, Hillsborough, Vancouver. However, um, there is talk now because we're short of venues here that will hold everybody in one place and that are cost-effective. That's another thing. That we'll start having some up north in uh, Mr. Rainey and Mr. Durgan's school up there. And, uh, and they're, they're members, they come to all the events. As a matter of fact, I try to coordinate schedules with them on purpose first, along with some of our people down farther in Southern Oregon, because they have a little bit of travel time to do. Um, normally we started at 11 and that's to allow people that, you know, are a few hours away to get here in time. So you don't have to like get up at oh dark 30 to be here. Nice. And everyone pays five bucks. It, yeah. Pays for the room. We're good. And we have a wonderful day and we usually go all go out to lunch or whoever wants to afterwards, and it's a wonderful time of fellowship and martial arts. It's been, uh, other than a couple little um, 
times when things have been tense because of one thing or another, it's been a wonderful thing. Yeah. Right on. Okay, so uh, just transitioning here into our final segment. So uh, last segment is usually the what I call the message of the world because I don't have a better title for it yet. But <laughs> it's the idea of, uh, you know, this podcast has been heard worldwide. And as you know, when you put something out on the Internet, it's out there forever. So uh, what message would you like everybody to hear from you? Basically, what I would like everyone to hear is that I feel that any study of martial arts, any martial art, will be beneficial to your life, to whatever your life is. Now, when I say martial arts, it doesn't necessarily have to be martial arts. It could be any other study, any other interest that involves a lot of time and effort that goes along with your normal day-to-day routine will be helpful in your life. It will give you something different to focus on and also will allow you the opportunity to look and see different things and experience different things with different people and whenever you're having a hard time, you'll always have something else to focus on. So many people, all they have is their job. And sometimes their job doesn't go well. So if they focus on the thing that's not going well, that's not a real positive thing to focus on. So it's always nice to have a hobby. I mean, I recommend martial arts, although it's not for everybody. It doesn't have to be simple. I mean, that's what I will say to do. But, you know, it's my opinion. But anything that you do, whether it be music or art or anything that you can delve into, is going to be extremely helpful. I am very, very happy and thankful to all the teachers I've had along the way, um, Al Tracy um, especially, because um, I kind of spent most of the time in his art. Um, he's built a good art, built a good system. Sadly, he passed away on the 31st of October, and uh, we're all working with that. But, uh, you know, I'm pretty much, I can't say I'm at the end of my life, I'm not. But as far as um, organizational and stuff, I've learned probably as much as I could as a set curriculum and what martial arts is after that is taking the curriculum you know and experimenting with it in other ways in other situations and in, in other environments and that's kind of how your art regardless of how small or how large it is will carry you through the rest of your life it'll always be a part of you if only indirectly and you'll always be able to take whatever you've learned and you'll be able to find ways to tweak it or to change the focus, or change the environment, and it'll always be new. And as long as it's always new, you're going to always be learning something, and it'll always be a positive experience. Yeah, I'm glad we got a chance to sit down and record this thing. I really do appreciate it. Perfect. I'm looking forward to hearing the uh, final results. All righty. Well, then I'll go ahead and sign off for the moment, on uh, recording at least. I appreciate your time and getting a chance to talk about it. Likewise. I appreciate it. Yeah. Hey, you have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much. Likewise. We'll talk soon. Take care now. Okay. Bye. All right. We had a great chat with Mr. Gannett. He's been around since the late 1960s, training and interacting with some phenomenal people. We played text message tag for over a month before we could get this one scheduled. I share his experience of being the small person in the crowd for most of my childhood. And martial arts does so much for people in the way of building confidence and teaching you about yourself and how to conduct yourself in the world. I just can't recommend training enough to anyone who's experiencing challenges in their lives. Great stuff. Thank you again, Mr. Gannett, for coming on the show. Mr. Gannett is the first guest we've had who has spent most of his career with the Tracy's Karate Lineage. So cheap plug, I've been trying to get a few more of the Tracy's Karate Lineage people to come on the show and tell us their stories too. Hopefully we can make that happen soon. I gave everybody the links in the opening, so I'm going to skip that on the closing, and we'll just wrap it up there. So that's all this week. I'm Steve Zalazowski. Catch everybody next time on the Artist of Motion podcast.